This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The school shooting at Oxford High School has horrified us all. Unfortunately, it's not an isolated incident. Shootings over the past few years have been on the rise and parents are increasingly worried about their child's safety at school. And school districts across the country are reporting rising absenteeism, declining enrollments, worries about fighting at schools. Are the nation's schools entering a new era or is this simply part of a pandemic induced trauma that shall soon pass, let's hope. To discuss these and other education issues I have with me today, Michael Hinoyosa, who was named the 2020 Urban Educator of the Year by the Council of the Great City Schools for his leadership as superintendent of the Dallas, Texas Independent School District. Superintendent Inoyosa, congratulations on your award and thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really exciting to have an opportunity to discuss important topics with you and, and our audience. Well, Superintendent Inoyosa, I must first ask you for your reaction to this horrible story emerging out of Oxford, Michigan. What can schools do to anticipate uh, those kinds of things that can happen? And uh, how are you approaching that problem in, in Dallas? Well, you know, this is uh, horrific and this is a superintendent and a parent and a teacher's worst nightmare. Um, parents will forgive us, unfortunately, we could commit academic malpractice, but they'll never forgive us if we let something unsafe like what happened in Oxford happen to us. It's very traumatic, but it's happening over and over and all over this country. And part of it is this infatuation we have with guns. Um, and uh, part of it is this society. And I think the pandemic also made it worse because uh, people have been cooped up and now they're back. And a lot of people's mental health has not been dealt with for an awful long time. How we handle this stuff is we have metal detectors, but quite honestly, we've caught, we've found one gun in my 13 years as superintendent through a metal detector. Think about it, you go through an airport and people get guns through TSA and they, they have all these protocols that you have to go through. We've collected a lot of guns, but our number one resource are the students. They always tell us. And we're so fortunate that we had, we had a, one shooting at a basketball arena, um, but we have not had one in the school. Um, and that's because the kids always tell us. And we have this anti-snitch philosophy by young people, but they know what's right and wrong. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate that there, and, and we, we talked about it at our senior team meeting on Monday, that when these kind of things happen, there's always some kind of notice or advanced notice or a warning sign. And how do you read those warning signs and how do you act upon them? Um, that is our biggest challenge. And, you know, I've been superintendent for 27 years, but my watch automatically at 4.30, I look up, I said, oh, good, another day. And we didn't have one of these tragedies. Because um, there, by the grace of God, go I or anybody else. You look, the, the, the superintendent in Broward County had a 10-year glorious run there. And it all came tumbling down when you had this, the shooting at Parkland. Um, so this is something that is just very difficult to deal with, something that's top of mind for every educator and every principal and every superintendent that I know. Yeah, that's certainly, that's certainly uh, 
uh, true, and uh, it's really uh, uh, I, I really understand what you're saying there. It's just got to be one of your biggest challenges. But now I want to ask you another question about about the announcement that came out of uh, your, the school district just today. Um, you're dropping the mask mandate. And I am so excited for your students and your teachers that they won't have to wear masks because I'm a teacher and I don't like to wear masks in the classroom. And my university is making me do that. So why did you decide to drop the mask mandate? Well, Paul, I don't like them either, but- uh, <laughs> Oh, you just put a mask in front of your face that we're on yeah. Zoom audience. So I can see him even though you all can't. So, but uh, yeah. Well, part of it though is we now have had a lot of history and we, we had to, to buck the governor and the attorney general uh, because at the time we saw that the number of cases were just alarming. And we knew that if, we implemented a mass protocol. We had a much better chance for success. And we've made it through. Uh, we've made it through. And variant, uh, the variant one, pandemic 1.0 was one thing. It, was, it affected adults more. The, the virus, COVID-19 2.0, affected students more. And then um, with the mass protocol, we were able to protect our students. And now, though, what I've been waiting for is these two holidays. We have Thanksgiving, then we have the winter break. And now we've had pandemic 3.0 that has come up, but it looks like it's not as serious as the other ones. And so we have a target date that on, on Martin Luther King Day, if we make it with the low numbers that we have right now, and we don't have another flare up with 3.0, then we can finally be liberated and finally take these masks off we're going to recommend them and our students have been very compliant our staff has been very compliant and we've somehow made it through and now we see a light at the end of the tunnel and i just hope it's not a freight train uh if things change we will bring them back but it doesn't look like they're going to change in a negative way and so we're excited to have this because you're exactly right learning is much easier uh without and teaching is much easier without having the mask on well, there's always a trade-off, and uh, uh, and I concede the balance that you've been pursuing because I think you did have an uptick in COVID cases just as schools were opening last fall. And I'm wondering, did you actually have to close schools uh, during the fall, or 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 not? No, we did not have to. We were very fortunate that because everybody was compliant with the mass. Uh, we didn't even have a single school that we had to shut down for any period of time. Uh, the previous year, the best decision I made was start school late. And then we started bringing students back in October and we ended school late. And then we thought it was over. And then all of a sudden the new variant was much more impactful on students. So, um, but we, we followed the science. You know, what's really amazing though, here um, the superintendents, were hung out to dry because we were getting conflicting medical recommendations depending on who appointed this medical person, whether it was, we're, we're very much a um, blue city in a purple county in a red state. So even medical professionals, depending on their worldview or of their boss, we were getting conflicting information. And we've been through two administrations that had completely different uh, federal administrations. So this has been quite interesting. But I'm glad we're getting to the end of this situation. 
Well, yeah, you're not in an enviable uh, uh, situation there because uh, uh, I think the science always uh, leaves a little bit up to judgment. It's not like it's uh, uh, perfectly predictable as to exactly what you should do. So um, the other thing that you've done recently is institute a bonus policy for high performing teachers. So tell me more, that's a very controversial policy. And Michelle Ree uh, introduced that in Washington, DC and, and she really got clobbered uh, even though it's, it's turned out to be very effective. Uh, in the long run, it's really had a profound effect in the District of Columbia. So what's, what's the story in Dallas? What, what are you doing and how do you measure teacher performance? Yeah, well, thank you, Paul. And this has been quite a journey. Um, Denver was somewhat successful as well. Then the politics blew up and the teachers union who didn't like it changed the board and now Denver's given up on it. Um, we are actually been very successful with it. And I was a skeptic at first. It was, I was working on one before I left Dallas. Then my successor brought one in and then he left and hadn't implemented it. And so I got to implement it on my second tour in Dallas. And we've had to have a, quite a few revisions on it, but what really finally sold me the aha moment was when I looked at a piece of data that we're keeping 95% of our best teachers and the ones we're losing are the ones that are not as successful. And our turnover rate has com gone completely down, even though the teachers organization, we don't have unions in Texas, even though they were fighting it, they got drowned out and the debate was over when we had that kind of result. We've also had significant improvement in student achievement. We've had a turnaround strategy that has worked remarkably because now we know who the best teachers are and we put them at the toughest campuses and they get the most money. When we started this journey, our average teacher salary was 54,000. Today it's 64,000. Today we have one teacher that's going to make over 130,000. We have 70 teachers that are going to make over 100,000. And these are our best teachers. And because now they're working harder, working longer, getting results. And it's it's been a godsend. And it has, it was controversial because when my predecessor was implemented, we lost 60% of our teachers because no one had, this was so difficult and so different. But now, our turnover rate is less than the state, less than the suburbs, less than anybody. Um, and we're keeping the best teachers. We're keeping 95% of the best teachers. So, and this is going on now seven years um, that we've executed on, on the teacher excellence initiative. And in fact, the state of Texas now is incentivizing the behavior that they want and they're allowing other districts and they're giving them money to implement something similar to what we've pulled off here in Dallas. And so I'm, I'm very pleased. And in fact, our taxpayers raise taxes 13 cents to have us afford this uh, plan. Uh, and that's why the salaries have gone up so much. So it's it's it, it would be an interesting case study. I know Harvard does case studies, and it would be an interesting case study for someone to do on how it all worked in this context. Well, what percentage of the teachers are now getting the bonus? Well, um, it, it, a significant number of them. I think we started, we're probably up to 35% that get some, and it varies. It varies on how successful they are. They get more 
um, if they're very successful, and then they get another $10,000 if they go to a very tough campus, and they get another $4,000 if they're bilingually certified, and then they get more money they work year round. So it just depends on which one, the ones that are over six figures are the ones that are hitting it on all of those items. And, uh, and people have heard, in fact, our teachers make more money than our assistant principals. So now, so now we've got a new problem we got to solve. No one wants to be an assistant principal, and we have to have a, a pipeline of future leaders. So we're we're looking at reinventing that pipeline and thinking about that job differently as well. well Superintendent, I want to bring you to Harvard because I want the professors to make more than the deans. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure that's that. But I would take you to do that. It would take you to do that. Well, but then those deans might not want me to come. So I don't know if that's a good idea. Well, so now, how do you measure the performance of teachers? Do you use test scores or are you using uh, evaluations? What are, how, do you, how do you go about deciding who is doing the best job? It's multiple measures. Um, and so the first measure is 50% um, uh, of it is based upon um, their evaluation and our principals have to do what we call spot observations of the teachers and give them feedback on, on what their effort, but we, we say effort is good, but results are better. And then the other 50%, 35% of it is on test scores, but it's a, a variety of different test scores. It could be the absolute performance of students, or it could be how much value, because we have a value added measure about how much the students learn with it, that teacher. It could be a national, a normed uh, opportunity from other uh, information that we have. And so whichever one of those three makes the teacher look best, that's the one they get 35%. But the most valuable piece, and you're not gonna like this, Paul, unless your students like you, 15% come from the students. The students at the end of the year get to measure the success of the teacher. We found that to have the highest correlation with student achievement. And so that, that and we have to use an outside firm to do the surveys and collect them all. But we, we found that to be very, very powerful. And, and so that's how, that's how it's based. And, and you don't have to be well, there. There are a lot of people out there who say that uh, students should be part of the evaluation system, but I haven't. That was not introduced in the other cities that I know about. So this is an innovation. It's very interesting that you find that such a, a, a potent part of your evaluation scheme. Now, we believe in culture, even though the, the state also let us have our own accountability system and 30% and of it is on value added, and, but and another 20% is on culture, the culture of a school, the culture of a campus. And, you know, we say that, uh, that culture trumps strategy all day long. If you don't have good relations with your employees or with your students, you're not gonna be as successful. So we've found that to be very powerful. Well, there are studies out there that are showing that Latino students are making more rapid progress in the United States than our white students and uh, probably more than black students. Uh, so, and this is true, especially in the South. And now, are you finding that to be the case in Dallas? Oh, of course, you are primarily uh, a Latino school district, but, um, you know, and, and the other thing I want you to comment on is just, why do you think this is? What's, what's happening here? Couple of things. Uh, it's true. It's accurate. Uh, I don't know about our white students, um, but uh, we are outperforming. And actually, we're forty-eight percent English learners, and our English learners are outperforming our 
second and third generation Latino students who've been here a long time. But they're also outperforming our African-American students. And we have very small, we only have 5% white students in our district. And it's an interesting phenomenon because when I was first hired in 2005, we had 1300 classrooms where we did not have bilingual instructors. So we had to go to Puerto Rico, to Mexico, to Spain, all over the world to get teachers. Now we are growing our own. But what we discovered, we went away from the bilingual model to the dual language model. And the purpose is we want students to become biliterate in two languages. And that's where the research shows when you can think and learn in two different languages, you have a much better chance of success. We've also created this two-way dual language where if you're an African-American or you're white, or you're second or third generation Latino that doesn't speak Spanish and you want to become biliterate, we can help you do that. We also now have secondary courses that you can take math in Spanish. You can take your HVAC course um, uh, in Spanish. So we've got, and now we're, we're being successful. Here's a couple other reasons too. Immigrants are hungry. And people who, and they use typically have two parents. A lot of our other kids that are, live in these urban environments, they may not have two loving parents at home, but a lot of our immigrant families do, and they're hungry and they're gonna get an education so they don't misbehave, they work hard. And so we've been very fortunate to have outstanding success, especially the last few years. Um, but there, someone needs to do a research study to see exactly what are all the factors. The belief system though has to be that you believe in your students. And, and sometimes, you know, our biggest challenge now is how well do we do with our black students? And so we have some initiatives to try to improve that. But your, your hunch is right, Paul, our Latino students are doing significantly. Well, well. Immigrants have always been the entrepreneurs, the people who bring a new energy into this country. This is the land of opportunity. And they often compare themselves to where they come from and they say, well, this is different. I have to adjust and everything, but boy, I have opportunities I would never have had had I not come to this country. Don't you think that's part of what's going on? I think that's part of it. I think they're so motivated that their life is better. They don't want to go back to the old stuff. And so I think motivation is really a big part of it. And uh, even though they get mistreated a lot, um, but they are motivated because their life is so much better in America than it is in their home country. So there's a study out uh, from Brown University just very recently that shows that those who learned in person did much better last year than those who were learning online and those who were in this hybrid condition. So does this accord with your experience that really you were going to suffer a lot if you were going to be sitting at home learning online. Absolutely. I agree with that 2000%. And I really shudder for California because they stayed out all year and parts of the country that did not even go in person at all last year. Those kids are going to be suffering for a long time. Now we did discover that for 5% of the students, they did better. Um, and but those 5% usually were students of agency, they had parents at home, or they had someone that was helping them augment their instruction. But we so we're gonna, we're gonna keep, we're gonna start a school next year for about students for about 5% of our students who, who want that, and they can do things non traditionally. But for most of our students in person was much better. And that's why we decided to get them back earlier. And then I was scared, I was terrified last year in April, only 60% of our students that we brought back 
of the seniors were on track to graduate on time. So we doubled down our efforts and we brought them in. We incentivized the behavior we wanted. We, we paid for their prom. We paid for their banquets. We did everything we could to get them back in the building because the worst decision I made was let them be hybrid at the beginning of the year and, and they were not engaged. So once we brought them back, we got 90% of them across the finish line. And I was very proud of my team for focusing on, on those students and getting them back. But yes, Brown University is on, on target. I guess Brown needs, now needs to compete with Harvard since y'all are in the Ivy League together. Maybe you ought to give them some credit. Well, uh, they did. They were very entrepreneurial, digging up the data out of these uh, state uh, uh, testing systems. And they've come up with a very interesting uh, uh, finding there. Now, let me ask you about um, the uh, about the high school. It seems to me, I mean, this shooting thing is is what brings it to my mind again, is that the high school seems to be a very challenge. The old comprehensive high school, which we all celebrated, doesn't seem to be working in the modern day. And students need to have some choices out there, some options, some things that are meaningful to them. Have you have you been moving in that direction? Absolutely, Paul. Uh, in Dallas, we believe in the IRS, the good IRS. Incubate, replicate, and scale. And what I'm going to describe to you now in the next few minutes is how we scale. We we had we incubated with early college high school model. It was a great model. It's a small 400 student high school, but they don't have athletics. They don't have cheerleading. They don't have choir. They don't have the regular comprehensive high school experience. So then I had a principal tell me, Doc, can I try that model inside a comprehensive high school? I said, son, you better try something because the state's about to shut down your high school. So he replicated that inside a, a comprehensive high school and the results were the same outstanding results because those kids now had a purpose. And then uh, New York invented this thing called P-TECH, Pathways in Technology, and we copied it, um, except we took it to scale. We put it in every comprehensive high school. This young principal told me, Doc, I would drive up to my high school and I'd be so upset because there'd be five busloads of kids getting on the bus to go to another high school in Dallas. And so, but now we've brought it to every community. We have 90 industry partners. It's a three-legged stool. It's the high school, Dallas College, which is a community college. And then we have 90 industry partners from AT&T to Thomson and Reuters to American Airlines. And the promise for these kids, you get on your associate's degree when you're still in high school and you get treated like a college student. The freshman and sophomore year are on the high school campus. The junior and senior year are at community college. And Paul, we've gone from in 09, only 7% of our students got any kind of post-secondary credential six years after graduating from high school to 2021 during the pandemic, 10% of our kids got an associate's degree as they were walking out of high school. And they had industry credentials and the American Airlines hired 10 kids making $58,000 at 18 years old with a 401k and free flights all over the world. And they're hiring them and they're working at American Airlines. And this story keeps replicating itself. See, and these kids aren't gonna misbehave and they're not gonna bring guns to school because they got something that they want and they, they're gonna have a, uh, a living wage and they're gonna have disposable income. But people told us we couldn't pull it off, but we did. And now we're very proud of our students, uh, for their performance. So you, you, I think, mentioned 10% uh, graduates like that. 
Is this going to expand? Do you see this as uh, something you want to project out to a higher and higher percentage as you go forward? Actually, we can't because the early college model is capped by the number of students. So we've just created this all over the high school. But let me tell you how we think. If you're in the top quarter, you're going to take international baccalaureate or advanced placement, and you're going to go to college in spite of us. Then we created P-TECH, we created the second quarter. And the only complaint we got about P-TECH is the kids, I didn't get in. What about me? So now we've reinvented the, the, the last two halves, and those are career institutes. And what those are is that we are training our students to be pilots, cybersecurity, mechatronics, HVAC, and we're, they're getting stackable credentials in those jobs. And every freshman, if you're not in advanced placement, if you're not in P-TECH, you have to take either principles of construction or principles of technology. So all of our students are getting something and not everybody's going to go to college. Not everybody's going to get to go to Harvard. But where do those caps come from? It seems to me that's an artificial thing. Is that a state rule? It's, it's a state rule. Yes. So if we could blow it up, we will. But yeah, I suppose it's uh, to save money, huh? <laughs> yeah, the state I guess. invents stuff to save money. Well, because the kids get college for free and the community college helps us and we help them. And the state pays for both enrollment in community college and high school at the same time. So it does cost them money to do that. Yeah, but Texas is a rich state and it's getting richer. It's getting all these people from California. A absolutely. And we're growing leaps and bounds. Now, but you're also getting a lot of resources from the federal government right now. All the COVID money that's uh, per, first Trump, now Biden, they're, they're both sending lots of money to schools as well as to lots of other local government and states. So um, how are you using these new resources that are becoming available? Yeah, we do appreciate it. And the fact that all of this really hung on the election for Senate in Georgia. Um, because, because that passed and all this money flowed. And let me tell you, we're very fortunate because we, we, we did have some academic loss. Now we're doubling down and we, got, we have 46 schools that have gone year round. And we've also done extensive tutoring. We also reinvented summer school. We call it summer breeze so that the kids are excited. We've also reinvented the space from three to six o'clock. Any student who's behind, we're going to bring them in, have them stay late. We're going to pay the teachers more, our best teachers more, because we know who they are because of the strategic compensation, and they're helping catch the kids up. We've also had operation connectivity where we have broadband access everywhere. We had put $50 million in our bond program for that, but now I'm getting it from the federal government so i can that money's now fungible i can use that for other things and other initiatives so we're very pleased with the money that we did get we've got it planned out we've also got we'll know we have a funding cliff in about four years so we're figuring out how to phase that down over time but we're very appreciative of that of those dollars that came through and there's still more in the pipeline with the infrastructure if that ever gets uh comes to fruition well superintendent i can now see why the uh, Council on Great City Schools named you the 2020 Urban Educator of the Year. So thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks, Paul. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I have been speaking with Michael Hinoyosa, the Superintendent of Schools in Dallas, Texas. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.